0: the Australian Bureau of Statistics released census results on Tuesday which unveiled a new portrait of Australia. There are more single parents and renters, the number of Christians are falling, more than half the country is now made up for the f- for first or second generation migrants from the likes of China, India and Nepal. But one particularly striking part of this portrait is the increase in Australia's indigenous population. In some age groups there was almost a 30% jump in in the numbers from the last census in 2016. So why is this the case and what's going on? Well, to learn more, we're joined by Professor Nicholas Biddle, Associate Director of the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods. He's also a member of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Demographic Statistics Expert Advisory Group at the Australian Bureau of Statistics. We're also joined by Associate Professor Chris Rullabaker, a Yugara Warrangal Wiradjuri man. He's Australia's first and only Indigenous ophthalmologist who throughout his life and on a day-to-day basis as a doctor has seen firsthand how people in his community identify or not. Nicholas and Chris, a big welcome to Saturday Extra.
1: Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Nicholas, I might begin with you just first to drill into the data a little bit. What's your take on the latest census figures with respect to the Indigenous population numbers?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of kind of trends which emerged. So as you mentioned, there was a really quite a large increase in the size of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population, um, so about a 25% increase um, from the 2016 census count. Um, but what we don't know yet uh, is how many people were missed from the census uh, and what, uh, what are the patterns are for those who didn't answer the Indigenous status form um, uh, question, sorry. So... If you kind of use the uh, undercount estimate from 2016 uh, and apply that to the 2021 count, which is probably our best estimate we have now, uh, you're looking at a Indigenous population of about 952,000 to a million uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. So a little under 4% of the total population estimate um, uh, identified as being uh, Indigenous uh, in the around the middle of last year.
0: Mm. So, why do you think the numbers are actually high? What's driving that?
1: Yeah, there's kind of a few components of uh, kind of Indigenous population change. Um, so, quite high uh, fertility rates relative to um, the rest of the population, uh, as well as um, kind of uh, births of uh, Indigenous kids to. Um, uh, pa- parents who one might identify as Indigenous and one might not. Uh, so if you have a, uh, say, a, a non-Indigenous uh, father, an Indigenous mother or vice versa, uh, then those kids are likely to have been identified as Indigenous. So that's a, an additional growth. Mm. Um, a relatively young population, so mortality rates are kind of uh, it, it, in the lower age groups. So uh, most Indigenous Australians are in age groups where mortality rates are quite low. Uh, and then you have a kind of people who weren't or didn't identify as Indigenous in previous censuses uh, who have done so this time. So that's kind of a net identification change. All of those factors, I think, uh, have led to quite a rapid growth, like we saw um, between 2011 and 2016, as well as between 2006 and and
0: 2011. Mm. Chris, does it surprise you to see these numbers jumping so much?
2: No, look, um, year on year, as was said earlier, uh, we have seen increases in the population. And certainly within uh, my experience and and my local community, we haven't been surprised. I think there are a number of factors playing into this, as already suggested, that uh, there are larger families. But I think the identity issue uh, is a large part of this, not just that If one of your parents is Indigenous, the children are more likely to identify as Indigenous, but also uh, people who are willing uh, to even perform, you know, fundamental functions of democracy like like join the census or or join the electoral roll, for instance. Mm. Mm. Uh, I I think that probably is a factor and I've suspected for a while That the the numbers are probably even higher than what they're showing now. Mm.
0: So, what was your family experience, just collectively and I guess individually, for all your members, with respect to self-identification?
2: Well, I come from one of the the you know the bigger uh, families in Brisbane, and I grew up in Brisbane, and we were we always identified as Aboriginal and there are a number of factors involved in that, not least of which was the, you know, the cosmetic um, obviousness of, of our family, <laughs> sort of fitted the, the traditional sort of look, if you like, of, mm. of the Indigenous stereotype. Um, but, uh, but certainly we were aware of families who were Indigenous but didn't identify, uh, particularly in the darker days, you know, through the fifties and sixties, and then the you know the Joe era, mm. uh, there were there were lots of people around who who we knew had Aboriginal uh, or Torres Strait Islander heritage, but chose not to um, not to divulge that for various reasons. Mm. Uh, a number of those families now do identify, and then further on through my career, through medical school and in the medical system as well, I've certainly continued to see that trend. But there's still a lot of people out there with Aboriginal heritage who don't identify. We also have to remember that people looking more and more into family history and actually rediscovering uh, Indigenous background that for often reasons of shame were hidden in the past.
0: Mm. So why are some of those reasons um, that you were aware of growing up and now uh, for people not wanting to identify?
2: Well, originally it was about survival. And that's that's how basic it was. If if you identified as Aboriginal, uh, and uh, you know you were subject to increased risk of having your children taken away, increased discrimination, uh, you know less opportunities presented to you in life. So so there was a there was a driver for people to to not identify in order to try and get ahead in Western society, and a lot of those drivers we're now seeing. Uh, are significantly reduced uh, and I think also just as a as a, as a general rule there's an increasing um, well as a, a there's a decreasing fear to identify as being Aboriginal and an increasing pride in being able to go out there and say well look yes I am Aboriginal this is you know this is a part of me this is who I am mm. but you know we're, we're, we're talking we're talking about the existence of Aboriginal people in, in that that colonial context until really quite recently and and that was a big part of it.
0: Well, I, increasing pride you mentioned there one of the motivating factors. Uh, Nicholas, what's the qualitative research saying on why this happens and are there some moments in history that have been catalysts or triggers if you like for people to feel more comfortable or mo- or more mo- or more motivated to identify
1: yeah, so there's both kind of well, the data suggest, and the and um, as you said, the qualitative evidence suggests that there's both kind of life cycle uh, moments. So when people uh, kind of reengage with uh, institutions, it's an opportunity for to uh, um, you know, reflect on on how someone might want to identify to the state and remember the census is kind of a state apparatus, and and therefore people need to to feel comfortable with kind of making that decision to identify or or be identified by uh, their family. Um, But as you said, there's also... Kind of national or or state or or kind of societal changes, and we certainly saw between the 2006 and 2011 census where um, the, you know, the apology to the stolen generation uh, made by the Australian Parliament and Prime Minister Rudd uh, that that was a um, appeared to be a, a factor in people feeling that the state ne- wasn't necessarily as uh, um damaging to them if if they did identify as an indigenous person uh but I think Chris made the point uh earlier that uh even this large growth or or this uh, count which we've seen. Uh, is still likely to be an underestimate, and there is still likely to be people who, for whatever reason, um, either personal, family, or or, or a, a negative experience in the past with a kind of government services, who may not, who still may not feel comfortable to identify. So, I think there's, from a policy perspective, from a, a kind of a, um, a, a operation of the state, we'd still need to to work harder and make sure that our our count and our estimates are as accurate as possible, and people are able. to still. Uh, Who aren't comfortable in doing so are are able to feel comfortable too.
0: Is there a part that um, Chris, this is for you, that some maybe Indigenous communities don't connect to the idea of the census? They see it as a Western paradigm that they're not interested in being a part of.
2: Uh, That's that's certainly a part of uh, some communities and some individuals not wanting to to join the electoral and and partake in activities uh, like the census. And I think also for a number of people there's, you know, there's a philosophical background to it where, uh, you know, a number of Aboriginal people will say, well, I'm an Australian Aborigine, not an Aboriginal Australian. Mm. And so, you know, they they, they make that distinction. Um, and again, it, you know, community to community is different and, and there are varying experiences with, uh, with you know, colonial um, activities. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I think it does vary uh, around the country depending on where you are.
0: What is the path to identification? How does someone go about that? If they're listening, you know, right now or if they're grappling with the idea themselves, what's the actual process practically?
2: Well, uh, it, the the state does define who can and can't identify as an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australian. And there are three parts to identity. One is that you have to have descended from one of the original groups uh, who were here before uh, British arrival. The second point is that you have to identify yourself, so personal identification. And the third part is that your community has to recognise you as being uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander.
0: Mm. Uh, Nick, I mean, do you see these these ideas about increases in First Nations people? I mean, is it what is the biggest push factor um, that you're seeing in the data?
1: Yeah. So look, I think there's um, uh, well, there's there's a few kind of age groups where um, uh, where identification um, uh, changes are greater, and and so I think. Part of the push factor is to you know to, to want to if you're engaging with government services. So so one of the the age groups where um, identification change is a little bit greater is is kind of transitions between into school or out of school into into work. Mm. Uh, and for those, and, and I think there is still a need to do better in in uh, in kind of education or, or, or other services uh, to to take into account the needs of, of Indigenous Australians. Um, but to the extent to which people feel that uh, there's a um, an ability to uh, kind of ad- obtain the type of services which they need uh, as an Aboriginal person or a Torres Strait Islander person, uh, then I think that can be a push factor uh, or. Um, other kind of uh, services, uh, Aboriginal health services, uh, the extent to which, um, you know, if, if they're providing the services which Indigenous Australians demand and need, uh, then that can create uh, that push. Um, but I also think there's there's kind of kind of family and, and other factors. so if someone moves uh, then that can that can be a trigger to uh, to, to kind of re uh, review uh, kind of how someone wants to identify with regards to to the state and And the important thing to make clear is that, uh, how someone ticks a box on a census form might have very little to do with how they identify socially, mm-hmm. uh, and and equal and and that's equally or or perhaps even more important. So. Someone might uh, identify themselves or with their family or with their friends, uh, but that might be very different in in how they do so with regards to services or or with the census or or, or other forms of uh, kind of state apparatus.
0: Is this something, Nick, that you're seeing as a global phenomenon, the rise in Indigenous identification? Are there similar trends going on overseas?
1: Yeah, so the, obviously the local matter and local matters and and Chris pointed out that even within Australia there's there's quite substantial variation but certainly in in countries like the US, like the UK, uh sorry like like uh, like Canada uh, not the UK, uh like Canada, <laughs> uh, New Zealand, um and even kind of parts of of Latin America, um you do see these you know th- these debates, these uh some people feeling more comfortable in identifying, um, and and also to a varying degrees, um, agencies like the ABS or, or Stats Canada or the Census Bureau in the in the US. Getting better at engaging with the community. So yes, it is a global trend, but local uh, uh, conditions do matter.
0: Chris, uh, those who self-identify at whatever stage in their life, but perhaps looking at those who, who who identify a little bit later on, are they always welcomed? Are they welcomed with open arms?
2: Not always. Uh, I guess it depends on their their own personal interactions with the community before they choose to identify as well as their family's interactions. So an extreme example would be an individual who their entire lives has, uh, has you know, grown up and lived as a non-Indigenous person. Their family hasn't identified for generations and they've been totally disconnected from from their local Indigenous community. And then they, you know, through family history or whatever, whatever process, almost rediscover that they have Indigenous heritage and then, you know, they pop along and say, well, here I am. Mm. Those people, in my experience, there is there there is always a period of caution and resistance from the community, and again, that comes from you know a history of having things taken, and, and so understandably, the community reacts with, "Well, hang on, who are, who who are you? Where are you from? Mm. Who are your people? Where do you fit into all of this?" As opposed to the individual who comes from a large, well-known Aboriginal family, and they haven't necessarily identified themselves, but then. As they grow older, they think, "Look, you know, uh, for whatever reason, I, I feel this is something important," and then go and identify. So it depends on those dynamics and how the person uh, interfaces and the background of that individual with the community. And then, on a larger scale, that those those same interactions and, and same interpersonal relationships exist on a, on sort of a family level, mm. because there are you know there are some families who have been blissfully uh, unaware or aware, depending on who they are, mm. of their Aboriginality?
0: Well, look, I'm afraid we are running um, short on time. Uh, Chris and Nicholas, it's been fabulous to talk to you. Can't wait uh, for the next census. Got to wait a while, five years, to see those numbers. But thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Thanks so you very much. much. And that was Professor Nicholas Biddle, Associate Director of the Australian National University Centre for Social Research and Methods and Associate Professor Chris Ruller-Baker, a Yugora, Warangal Wiradjuri man and Australia's first and only Indigenous ophthalmologist. You are listening to Saturday Extra on RN. I'm Catherine Robinson. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message on the text line.